All right. All right. Welcome back, Ben, to our final side quest in Majora's Mask. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing good. And uh, I just beat the game yesterday, I think. I'm losing track of days as it is summer, but I'm um, pretty sure it was yesterday. Um, and so I, I hope that you have had a chance to uh, take down Majora in the final battle and, uh, and see some, some credits roll. Um, I, I have some questions about those, but I mean, maybe we should just start by uh, talking about some of the final masks that we might not have touched on yet, final requests and things down on the surface of the earth. So did you have a particular one you thought we should uh, start with? Um, one of the ones that definitely jumps out is the All Night Mask yes. and the subsequent stories that we get to hear from Andrew's grandmother. Um, like, sort of coming back around to our theme of maturity, uh, which we've touched on a lot um, as we've been discussing the game. Um, if, you, if you talk to Angie's grandmother, uh, she'll tell you stories, but if you do not have the all-night mask, you'll fall asleep listening to them. Um, and I find it kind of striking uh, because, first off, she's, she's not in her right mind. She thinks that you're Tortoise. Um, who is apparently like Andrew's brother or something. I, I don't even know. It's not clear who Tortoise actually is. Um, but it's clear that it's someone who is important to her in some sense, someone who she told these stories to once upon a time. Um, uh, but again, this, this whole, like it's this very interesting dynamic between youth and age in this in this case, like, like they always talk about, um, when you get old and you sort of have trouble remembering things or have trouble placing yourself, people refer to it as like your second childhood. Um, and I think it's interesting that on the one hand, she's one of the wisest characters in the game. She's one of the few characters who actually understands a lot of the lore that's sort of sitting around the edges about the, about the giants, about, um, the festival, I mean, you talk to tons of people about the festival and, you know, the carpenter is insistent that it has to go on, but it's not because of you know, any sort of religious sense. It's just, you know, because that's what we do. Um, like, how many years have we done this? It's important for our economy. Like, these are the arguments he uses, not like we have to revere the gods. Um, but she understands, like, she recognizes that the, that the giants are what the festival is all about. Um, so, but on the other hand, I mean, she confuses you and she doesn't have any sense of where she is. And it's clear that Andrew is taking care of her. Um, so again, she's in that, sec that sort of second childhood. Um, and you too aren't old enough to, to sit through her stories without the help of the all night mask. Um, you are not old enough to stay awake all night um, as she stresses. Um, so you know, you have this strange infirmity on both of your accounts that she's not entirely sure what's going on and you're not mature enough to actually pay attention to everything that's happening. I always thought that Tortoise must be like a pet name for Dotor, the uh, the current mayor, who's oh, okay. her um, son, right? Um, yeah, it, I it think, could very well be. I don't know. That's always how I read that, but I... I could be wrong about that. Well, that wouldn't make sense. No, no, that that doesn't work at all because that would make Andrew and Cafe related. Yeah. yeah, I'm mixed up. But the name sounds kind of like Dotor's name, so there's something. It does. Going. 
Huh. Yeah, and it, it could be that there is a relationship there that we don't fully appreciate. Like maybe she read to him, read to the mayor, uh, even if she, they weren't related or something. Like maybe yeah, there that's was possible. Connection. Yeah, maybe she like a babysat for him or something when they yeah. long ago. So yeah, the the question of sort of like the history there um, is an interesting one. I kind of like the idea that you know part of the function of stories is to put kids to sleep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And it's like, that's, that's up front as well. When you go to talk to her, um, you know, she, she seems to really not be too put off if you fall asleep during her stories, right? That, that's like, that's okay. And you're, um, you're still just, just as loved, you know, on the other side of it. And I think it's funny too, that on the longer story, if you get the right answer to her question that she asks you, she doesn't mm-hmm. give you a prize for that. Um, right. You have to say you don't know the answer. <laughs> I was so I was so like confused by that at first. I was like, wait, there was only one possible answer. <laughs> like, how is that <laughs> right? But actually, of course, you can say don't know, and that's always um, a good answer to give if that's the honest truth, right? Um, right. So, so she rewards you for that. I, I really like that um, little, like you you might not really know that she has a second heart piece to give you. You mm-hmm. might sort of accept. Oh, I guess you know you can only get one of the two. Um, but no, actually, if you, if you do, do both stories and you choose different answers on each one, you do get two different pieces of heart, which I think that might be unprecedented um, in the game. I don't know if any other single character gives you two different pieces of heart. Do they? Um, not that I can think of. Like the closest, the closest I can think of is, is the creepy guy in the canyon. Like mm-hmm. when you fight his ghosts, he gives you a piece of heart, and then he's sort of apparently like the guy who's maintaining the secret dungeon behind the waterfall. And wow. if you beat all of the bosses, you get a piece of heart, but it's indicated in both cases that he's just like the steward. This is, this is not his gift to give. He's just the messenger. Like he's communicating with the spirits. The spirits want you to have this. So it's not nearly as direct. Gotcha. Um, so in the sense of, you know, an actual person giving you a piece of heart, yeah, she is unique in that she's got two to give. Yeah, I, I, think, I think about the story's content as well, yeah, as being kind of significant here because, you know, although you can talk to her right in the beginning of the game and get sort of half of each story, mm-hmm. you can't um, get the full story until probably very late in the game when you've, you've done a, a good deal of of uh, spelunking in the Skultola house and got the, the giant wallet and, and figured out to, to buy the all night mask. Mm-hmm. Um, so you sort of like figure out there towards the end that there is more of a kind of myth going on, but also kind of a history. Like her stories incorporate both in an interesting yeah. way, right? It's like the traditions that surround the myth are historical. The myths themselves, as it turns out, like do have a kind of historical truth uh, within the the frame of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, like this, the Skull Kid. Who knew he's from this world, or at least he spent enough time there to to befriend and then be hurt by the giants right. at some point in, in the distant, you know, mythic uh, past. And it, so, uh, yeah, go ahead. It, it's interesting too that, um, like, I've always been sort of fascinated by by how time works in Termina in that sense. Cause exactly. I mean, the grandmother talks about this as though this was like you said, the mythic past and yet you were engaged in fixing this broken relationship in the present. Um, and it, 
I mean, considering especially the, that the Skull Kid is so juvenile and so much of what he does, the idea that he is as old as the Giants is shocking. Um, that, that this is either repeated or has played out over literally hundreds of years to get to this point. I don't know if this is a, a theory that makes any sense at all, but like, so part of the strangeness of this is the size difference between the giants and the skull kid, mm-hmm. right? Like if, if time is this thing, which is sort of eternal and, and mythic and yet like um, involves, you know, lifespans of actual people and they, they sort of like, like talking to the, um, the troop leader, the circus leader, Gorman, um, he talks about having seen the, uh, the former Lulu, right, with um, her band perform the, the song there at some previous carnival, right? So, th- so there's definitely like an actual real history there as well. Um, yeah. and, and so there's this, this intermingling of the two. And so I wonder about like the way in which the giants, you know, grew up to be that big and, and yeah, why the Skull Kid who seems so young and is so small should in some way be like co contemporary with them contemporaneous or or something with them. It it seems like there's some sense in which um, that theme of maturity really got to enter in there to like make sense of of that discrepancy Um, that there's something that is within time and yet not totally determined by time, which accounts for those differences. Um, the ways that, you know, time sort of folds back on itself, um, the ways that you um, can, can revive memories and, and reconnect people um, in, in all these different ways. It, it does seem like that, that process is, is very much foregrounded here towards the end of the game. Um, and, and the difference here's one other really weird one the difference between the the mask salesman and the little kids running around in the moon who who mm-hmm. are, are like you're going to be a mask salesman too right it, it's it's very very odd um that he should like revert to his childhood there or that would be that that should be the form that those those kids on the moon have but but maybe that's jumping ahead of it yeah there's a lot to be unpacked there, I think, both, you know, the, the kids and their relationship to the mask salesman. But I I am struck, though, um, like there are numerous places, most notably the, the mechanic itself, where Majora's mask suggests a sort of cyclical relationship to history. Um, I mean, obviously, you're replaying the same three days over and over and over again. But at the same time, I mean, you're told by the by the mask salesman that the sort of apocalyptic destruction that Majora's mask wrought has happened in the past. What you were trying to prevent is a recurrence, something that's already happened. Um, So there, and then just sort of like a lot of the, a lot of the, the imagery and the metaphor surrounding this game are about this cyclical relationship. Like the carnival of chime comes around every year um, there are these traditions that are repeated that you are interrupting or trying to fix in some cases, um, even down to like Lulu, you know, now being the, the daughter of Lulu a generation before. Um, it's very clear that, that history is repeating itself fairly frequently. 
I mean, in the greater scheme of the Zelda canon, every Zelda game is a repetition in many cases. Like, you fight <laughs> Ganon num- endless numbers of times um, throughout the series. So, um, like, the best interpretation I've got of that, you know, why are, why is, why are the giants so old and the mask kid seems so young? I, I kind of get the sense that this is, this is not the first time there's been a falling out between those two. And there is something of mythic proportion here. Um, something big, bigger than all of the characters wrapped up in it. Bigger even than the giants and the skull kid themselves in all likelihood. Yeah. I, I, I like the way that the, um, the, the spells that he casts um, on some of these characters, right? Like on Cafe, it's a spell mm-hmm. that makes them look like a child, right? Um, on the, on the, uh, bu- uh, the butler's child um it's a spell that sort of freezes him in 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 childhood um and prevents him from ever you know living his full life and and of course you know the uh the ways that that link um plays into this as well right as you mentioned he's this kind of recurring hero um he's a cipher for the person playing the game whether they're young or old um he in this game um, is is given a lot of help from sort of mysterious sources, um, but he also, you know, ultimately it's his determination that really uh, carries the day there at the end. Um, so he uh, is a cool kind of parallel for the Skull Kid there. Um, and that's that's mentioned, like their, their previous history together uh, gets mentioned at the very, very end. Uh, right. He mentions, hey, you're just like that fairy kid I met in the forest so yeah. long ago. Yeah. He sniffs him. This is a reference clearly to The Hobbit when Bilbo says it smells like elves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this is what the Skull Kid notices about Link, that he smells like the, the fairy boy. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. it's, so there's, um, I mean, there is something weird going on there. Um with the with the fairies too, right? They're broken into small pieces. They're refashioned to be big again. They they clearly have got to have some kind of relationship to the giants and the skull kid. Uh, I don't want to like dwell too much on what that relationship might be necessarily, but you know. So there there's some kind of interesting, uh, numinous you know magical uh, qualities going on here. The the actual moon you know falling to the earth that that spell. Um, that also seems like it probably has some sort of backstory. Um, I I wasn't able to, or I didn't get around to <laughs> looking up to see what sorts of mythic references there might be for that um, in in you know world myth or whatever. Um, but I I mean I I don't doubt that there must be something um, that that is sort of at least loosely based upon. I don't know if you have any guesses as to that. I don't have much. Um, I know, I know both the sun and moon are personified as gods in Japanese mythology, um, and that they're a big deal. Like Amaterasu is the sun god, and he's sort of one of the major featured heroes of a lot of the myths. Um, like he, he is frequently the one who has to band band the gods together and and save things and if i'm not mistaken i want to say that the moon is is his lover um but i could be way off base there um 
there are th- I'm actually like I'm pulling a lot of this is from the surprising Z- Zelda clone Okami, um, which oh. has, is even more grounded in Japanese mythology and sort of reproduces a lot of the key myths and key heroic moments. Um, although doing it from a rather strange perspective, because um, in in Okami you're kind of you're kind of playing as Gandalf. Like there are a <laughs> bunch of heroes who you need to variously inspire or encourage to take up their heroic mantles who are just really bad at their jobs and you have to, you know, do half the fighting <laughs> for them. Um, but awesome. yeah. Um, so the idea that the moon is itself like dangerous or destructive, I think that's unique to Majora's mask. And, mm. and it also, I mean, it's always, struck me as likely that the moon in Majora's Mask, the one that's about to collapse and kill everyone, it's not supposed to be there. Yeah. Um, so when when you when you successfully complete the game, when you go inside the moon and you beat Majora, um, the moon disappears. It doesn't like fly back up in the sky. It's not like, oh, uh-oh, and then pieces out. Um, <laughs> instead, it just disappears. It all vanishes. So again, it seems like this outside force, like it's been conjured more than it's been sort of roped into falling. Yeah. Plus, plus the face. I mean, the fact that the moon has a face, the fact that the moon talks to you, the, like it has this sort of uh, almost id-like quality about it where it just wants to feed. Um, <laughs> and it, it seems more like a force than it does like a proper moon um in any sense uh but i also think it's likely again just from the context of the game that this is this is another recurrent catastrophe um i mean when the happy mask salesman tells you that something horrible happened that there was this apocalypse once upon a time it, it plays the same graphic that you see when the moon falls um so it seems likely that the catastrophe that happened before is the same one you're dealing with now, this weird, unpleasant moon face thing coming and destroying the world. Um, it definitely has got some analogs. Uh, I mean, I don't play enough video games to really, you know, it, this is, this is a different, definite uh, weakness in my analysis, but I, I, I think it's interesting. Like, of the games I've played, a number of them involve something celestial coming to like destroy the planet, right? Like yep. the Final Fantasy games, that's pretty much what you've got as your your big, you know, final you know, battle type of, of situation. Mm-hmm. Um, in Final Fantasy two, which was originally four, I guess, you go you go to the moon, the you like fly on a, a giant whale spaceship. Yep. Lunar whale. <laughs> right. It's awesome. The big whale, yeah, and the big fat chocobo lives in it. And <laughs> and on the moon you uh you have to like, you know, sort of go through a lot of caves and you, you go into it, you know, you you mm-hmm. um you dig down in that same kind of way. Um it doesn't gobble you up, but but you right. know, it's close. And and of course, in Final Fantasy VII, you've got meteor, and that's like coming down to smash the world really slowly, really hugely, very mm-hmm. moonlike in this in this sense. So, Lavos and Chrono Trigger—it's the same thing. Yeah, La- yeah, Lavos. Yeah. So it's there's definitely something there. Um, I suspect again that there's at least partly a historical reference in the back of your mind when you look at that too. Is you know. Um, 
we talked about a little bit with Ikana, the way that the old soldiers won't give up their posts, you know, that, that similar kind of thing, that kind of Cold War, um, you know, take duck and cover drills, um, right. I think has got to be sort of going on there in, in the background too. And, and it's, it's incredible how, how moving that is actually, <laughs> like, like at the end of the cafe side quest that you talked about a while ago, um, we kind of touched upon it, but, but you get to, you get to just experience like a little bit of what that must have been like when, you know, atomic war at any time was like a real potential, like it had actually happened in this people, in these people's, you know, um, uh, so that's in their, their mental framework as yeah. a real. So, so anyway, um, we should, I think, mention, I mentioned the song, um, The Ballad of the Windfish. I mm -hmm. didn't think about this until you reminded me, but, but Don Giro, whose mask you have, he's a character from Link's Awakening, right? He's the, yes. he's the frog conductor. Um, and so that's, that's like a little interesting kind of motif that runs through this game is it, these little references back to that with the Ballad of the Windfish being, um, I guess, sort of like the final credits theme uh, seems to come from there too. Um, mm -hmm. It's, a, I guess, a song of, well, you know, awakening, right? Of, of, of coming out of a, of, of a long dream. Um, and in the way that that, you know, hits people, you, you see it with the circus leader. Um, it's, it's really sad. It's really moving. Um, you know, most of the end credits are happy, but there is that sad one at the very end. And, and most of the cafe Andrew side quest is is a story of like them coming back together, but there is that that element of of deep sadness there. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know what what is it about sort of awakening that that correlates with that that note of pity and and sadness that that seems to underlie a lot of this. Um. Well, I think part of it is again coming back to that subject of maturity that we touched on earlier in the series where we sort of examined that um, like drunkenness especially was both sort of the reward and also a problem in its own right. Um, something that you had to achieve, something that you had to work for, something that you had to be mature enough to enjoy, but mature because you had suffered um, hardship and misery and all sorts of bad things. Um, and I, I kind of get the sense that, that this sort of theme of awakening has a lot to do with that, that while, um, while you can drown your sorrows or get stuck in your ways or sort of inure yourself to what's going on around you at the end of the day, you do eventually have to wake up. Um, you do eventually have to face things good or bad. Like the circus leader, he has to wake up to the good things in his life. Um, whereas the Ballad of the Windfish has to wake up to reality. It can no longer live in the dream. Um, so I think there is a complex relationship there. I don't think it's clearly normative. Um, but I also think there's sort of, again, this sense that, uh, this sense that the world isn't as it should be. Um, both in Link's Awakening where, you know, you have this elaborate island, this whole ecosystem that needs to go away. Um, and that throughout the game, you get these sort of cryptic hints that while everything might be great while you're here, it all has to disappear. It's, it's 
just a dream and it needs you need to wake up from it um which is awful because like you know you've got that girl who you sort of have a relationship with and you have all these people in their lives and all of it's got to go and the game does not it does not sort of give you an option as far as that's concerned. No, your responsibility as the hero is to make sure that the windfish wakes up, not because of some evil, but the evil is going to take over the dream if you do not do this, but you don't have any choice but to do it. Um, and I think Majora's Mask is very indebted to Link's Awakening. Like both of them are the odd men out in the Zelda franchise. Um, they're both these these side quests, so to speak, where the main through line is always Link, Zelda, and Ganon. These are both of the times that the series has wandered away from that formula. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of references to Link's Awakening and Majora's Mask, probably because of its position, but also probably because of that theme. Um, Termina is a dream. Termina gets to survive, un unlike the windfish. Um, and the windfish's little dream island, but it doesn't change the fact that that everyone needs to wake up. That in Termina things have gotten bad and need to be corrected. And your job, yes, is to save them from the moon, but it's also to sort of wake them up to what's going on around them, um, to realize their relationships, to to snap the Akana military out of their sort of despondent and pointless wandering to, to stop the infighting between the Deku and the monkeys, um, to get the people of Termina to sort of like wake up and recognize what's going on around them instead of fighting over traditions pointlessly for hours in the mayor's office. Um, you have to get them out of their habits because their habits are no longer helping the situation. You have to restore them to the way things are supposed to be. Yeah, the mayor, I feel like the mayor is the one who gives you a hint about going to talk to the to the guy at the curiosity shop, right? Like, he's he's been a, a guy who, who stays up late, it's, it sounds like. Um, mm -hmm. there, there's something interesting there. Um, but of course, that's bizarrely enough, like, after you've probably already had to figure that out, like, in order yeah. to get the couple's mask to do that. Yeah, so, so you've probably already got the all night mask by that point but if not you know he gives you a little hint there um mm. there might be there might be more to that guy at the curiosity shop um but yeah it's 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 mentioned right that that's uh like a, an ancient torture device right <laughs> the mask mm -hmm. that makes you stay awake all the time that's not good either right so there, there's yeah. some kind of interesting again that balance of of youth and age of, of sleep and waking that, that there, there's a sort of a natural rhythm to it that has to be uh, observed. Um, I, I like the frogs for that reason. You know, the they, they're like, oh, like it's it's time for spring in the mountains. I didn't know. I'll get there right away for the for the music, right? Um, and I, I noticed I, the frogs yeah. too. Um, half the time when you find the frogs, it's after you beat them in their newt form, like the, the <laughs> little mini boss form. So you have to fight them. You have to you have to restore their frogness for them to actually go back to the mountain and participate in the chorus yes yes i i mean it, it's a it's a delightful um way of um of, of ringing in the new year right of, of the, the the balance of nature it's through um in town it's through the masks right everyone is supposed to bring a, a homemade mask and 
it struck me like when I heard her say that in her story, the grandma, I don't know of anyone except Andrew and, and Cafe that's that's actually making their their mask for the for the party, right? Um, mm-hmm. So it's like this is a kind of lost tradition almost, um, as much oh. as you see old yeah. masks on the walls, right? Yeah, you see a lot of masks on the walls. You can recognize that this is sort of like a deep seated part of the tradition, but at the same time, you know, you watch the credits. Nobody's wearing a mask, um, and that would be the logical time to do it. Um, like that would be the day of the festival. That's when you're supposed to do it, according to the stories that Andrew's grandmother tells you. So, you know, they have lost sight of that tradition for whatever it's, reason. I, I mean, you've also sort of been um, hoarding all the masks at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've got quite a collection. Um, maybe the reason why they're not wearing masks is because you have them all. <laughs> well, you and the mask salesman, right? He's got a, a whole bunch still on his, his big giant pack. Um, and, and there's more. There's a few that are like in the back room of the curiosity shop and up on the walls. If you look around, you see them everywhere. It's very strange. Um, you, you look through one to, to see what's going on in the, uh, mm-hmm. in the curiosity shop. Um, so there, there's, there's kind of these extra masks throughout the game, uh, which you start to notice. And we talked about this a little bit with the, the Babel uh, Tower blocks, right? Those, mm-hmm. those have those faces on them. Um, there's blocks I noticed up in the moon when you get to each of the kids' hiding places at the end of the little mini dungeons. They're mm-hmm. surrounded by these blocks that have these like creepy faces on them. And again, when you fight Majora in his chamber, you know, at the heart of the moon, there's, there's all the masks on the walls. Um, the ones that you had defeated um, sort of are, are reanimated there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but at the very end, um, that, makes, that mask salesman, he, he disappears. Everyone seems to be sort of restored and, and unmasked, right? And that's mm-hmm. good, apparently. That seems like the right thing. Um, so as far as the, um, the remaining heart pieces, I, I mean, I, don't, I didn't get them all this time. I didn't make that a, a part of my completionism. Yeah, uh, I got to about 15 hearts, and that was, I might go back and get them at some point, but don't have them yet. Yeah, it's... Um, some of them are so difficult, though. <laughs> like so difficult to get. The one in the um, the the reprise of the Goron dungeon, right, where you have to like roll against the treasure boxes. Um, that's so difficult for me. Yep. Uh, I, I remember spending so long trying to get that heart piece last time I played, and I don't remember if I ever got it. Yeah, um, I, I pulled it off this time around and thought whoa. to myself as I was playing it that I am getting too old for that particular <laughs> part of the game. Um, Holy smokes. But one of the things I noticed as I was um, doing my research and thinking about this, um, like one of the tricks that that little area sort of suggests um, is it will actually go much better for you in that whole little mini area if you let go of the joystick for about half of that run. Right. right. Um, like if you have a straight shot of that first treasure chest that you're supposed to bounce against, if and you're rolling at it and gaining speed and like waiting to get to the, the like maximum speed of the Goron, then you just need to let go and it will automatically hit like the next four treasure chests until finally you have to tr- make this turn to the right. Um, 
and it took me forever just to figure that out as a kid. Like I would, I would have the joystick pushed all the way forward and like I would quiver one little way to try and correct and it would just send me completely off in the middle of nowhere. Um, and the 3DS version at least is more forgiving than, than the N64 one. Like you would just eventually die in that one, but in the 3DS they'll heal your hearts as you go. Um, but yeah, it's a tough, tough area. Um, it's probably one of the hardest challenges in all of Zelda history. (laughs) Yeah. Well, this makes me think of, um, as I was playing through some of these last quests, it made me think of, yeah, exactly what you're describing. The, the necessity of letting go of the controller, right? Letting things go. And, and that I think has a kind of corollary, um, in insofar as for a lot of the cafe Andrew side quest, you're just waiting around mm-hmm. um, because you have to wait for specific times of day for things to happen. Um, and so you're just kind of like waiting, right? And, and there's, a, there's a moment in Earthbound that I like to think about a lot with this. Uh, when you go and you're trying to get into the Belch um, factory uh, behind Grapefruit Falls near Saturn Valley, the, the password is to just wait three minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so there's something about these games that sort of, again, like teaching you to, of course, develop very specialized skills um, in one sense and do a lot of things and be very active, but in another sense to, to also be able to let go of that and, and just let the game sort of go, um, observe it, think about things and, and, and wonder and, and explore, right? And I mean, I think it's very beautiful, too, that you bounce off of these open treasure boxes. They, mm. they function because they cannot be gotten. Right? Right. If, you, if you got them and they went away, well, there, there would be no way to complete this little area um, because of those right angle turns. Um, you, you could, of course, I don't know, probably cheat in some way, I'm sure, but, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> but the, I think there's a similar thing there with the Zora one, too, because if you sort of just go straight down the middle, at least in the uh, N64 version, that seemed to work for me to get to the end of, the, uh, of that section. Yeah, um, they changed that a lot in the 3DS version, and not in a good way, in my opinion. Uh, um, what did they do? It, it's, the whole thing is striated. Like, instead of having that, that one long current that pulls you to like one of six or seven rooms towards the end. Instead, it's like you first you go down and it's a two way branch and you have to pick left or right. And then you have to like jump out of the water, which is a bit of a skill thing in this game. It's not nearly as hard. It's not nearly as easy as it was even in the N64 one. But then after you do that, they put you in another room and now there's like three different ways you can go left, right or center. And you have to find which one it is. And then you go to the next one and it's like four different ways. And it's like top and bottom and left and right. And it's just like so much process of elimination because you just have to backtrack that whole time and it's not fast. And if you miss like it's all timed, so if you don't make it through the gate, if you don't jump out of the water just right, then oops, got to go back to the beginning. Um, it, it, I was not a fan of that particular change. Um, <laughs> but I, I noticed, um, again, when I was sort of poking around doing my research, um, that one, um, one of the commentators online was uh, attributing this to the theme of faith. Um, huh that for the Goron, it's a matter of faith that you let go of the stick and let the game sort of direct you in the right direction. As the Zora, you're sort of 
trusting the current to carry you where you need to go, not trying to direct it to one direction or another. Um, and that also dovetails with the questions that the individual children yes. ask you um, because every one of them challenges one of your core beliefs as a player in the game. Like, are you really being these people's friend? Are you in fact making them happy? Um, are you doing the right thing? Um, and importantly, the twin mold one asks, um, is it your true face under the mask? Yes. Um, so all of them, sort of hit you with these heavy hitting existential questions. Um, and if we follow that, that analysis of the sort of stone tower as tower of Babel thing, it's debatable that the people of Termina are guilty because they have lack faith. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, you know, your dedication, your convictions, your trust in both them and you know, the world around you that leads you to try and save them. Um, so in a very real sense, like that's one of these central conflicts. Are you in fact the good guy? Are you in fact doing what you're supposed to do? Um, and I think that Majora's Mask really does challenge that. Like, are you willing to let go? Are you willing to let the people of Termina try and sort out their own problems after you save them? Um, and I think Earthbound is talking about something similar. Like, I mean, the prey command is one of the earliest ones that you unlock. Right. Um, and, and every time you use it, you know, who knows what will happen? Like, <laughs> sometimes the gods are displeased and you don't get anything. And sometimes you get exactly what you need in the nick of time. Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah. There, that, there's, a, there's a moment early when you've just, you know, met Paula you can go and, and fight some really hard enemies, which I, I suspect were made that difficult to really encourage the player to, to have to rely on the prey command coming mm -hmm. through for you if you want to actually get through that dungeon uh, at that point in the game. Um, it's tough. Yeah, it's, yeah, that's a great example. I mean, I'm sure there's, there's others. Um, it seems like a, a sort of a natural, I don't know, um, like... A natural endpoint of of innovation of an art form, right? To like begin to question the implications, the presuppositions of of, of that that form, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, insofar as the game fits into some kind of description of art, it, it's got to be doing something along those lines here. I, I think I, I don't think it necessarily has to be a the, the theological implications, although I think those are again. That makes sense if we have a certain theory of human nature, but but I mean I, I do think that there's something kind of aesthetic going on there as well, which I would just throw in. Yeah, sort of like giving up on your skill as the guide to get you through the game. In yeah. Cases. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I think that there's probably some flaws to this game. Um, I don't know exactly what they are or if everyone would necessarily agree with them. But I mean, I think that everyone would probably agree that this game has certain strengths um, and that, you know, innovation is, mm. is definitely, for me, one of them, um, just like getting to do a lot more things uh, than you really could do before with, with the mask abilities and things. Um, and so it's, I think it's quite um, gnarly that like the last thing you have to do in the game is basically give up all these masks. Um, yeah. 
that's tough. <laughs> There's certain masks that I really didn't want to let go of by the end. But it just questions, like, as much as they literally question you, you also, like, question yourself, like, wait, is this really what I need to do right now? Is, like, give away all these masks? Am I doing the right thing? Yeah. And again, that ties back into that question of faith. Like, are, I mean, what are you going to get for this? I mean, all of these kids are running around. This is clearly all sort of orchestrated by Majora. They're wearing the masks of the various bosses you fought in the game. Um, what, what, do you, what could you possibly hope to get from them for chucking these masks around? Things that you fought for. Some of them are really hard to get. Um, some of them, I mean, like the couple's mask or, or uh, um, the Romani mask, that symbol of maturity, and you just pass it off um, and, and, you know, without any promise. Like there, there's, nothing, there's nothing that says, hey, do this and then you'll get the fierce deities mask. There's no indication at any time in this whole process like the only thing that you have to go on is, Hey, this is a video game. And if in fact they take all my masks, something good's going to happen. Right. Like, so again, it comes back to faith. Um, Yeah. I think about that a lot with respect to like trusting the person that you're talking to also, right. Like to be in good faith. Um, You know, this kind of element of of sportsmanship we, we might call it, but, but it's so fundamental like to just, to spend this much time playing the game, you've already invested a lot of trust into it being like a worthwhile experience, right? And like maybe being good for you in some way. Um, so yeah, I think it's just a natural extension of that to be like, yeah. I mean, I think there's also something to be said for the n- the numerical like significance of it as well. Like there's definitely a pattern, right? And so yeah. whenever you see a pattern to me at least that that indicates okay there's there's probably something at the end of this if i just follow right. out so right you give away one you give away one you give away two you give away two and, and so on and and so it's like i think that there's that kind of mathematical logic to it as well in that way mm-hmm. so all right so we've talked a little bit about these little kids running around um do you have a theory about why they should be uh, little versions of the mask guy and, and like even sort of reference that by, by asking if you're going to be a mask salesman too. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to say. Um, you do get the sense that, that Majora and the happy mask salesman are sort of like the two, the two opposing poles of the spectrum of power in Termina. Um, that like, if there is, if there is an all good guardian deity, it's the happy mask salesman. He's the one who gets you moving. He's the one who apparently collects these masks, he, which apparently have like tremendous power in them. Um, if Majora's mask is any indication, um, he's the one who, you know, you know, from Ocarina of Time and from elsewhere that his job is to spread happiness in the same way that the skull kid under the, under Majora's mask influences in under the influence of the mask is going around spreading discord and unhappiness and misery. Um, So the prospect that Majora takes as his like initial incarnate form, like when he drops the skull kid as a useless puppet, um, he immediately embodies these little like child versions of the happy mask salesman. I mean, there's a lot of resonance there. Like 
and I'm not sure what exactly the motivation is, but you can see like from the happy mask salesman, you meet the bombers who also have a very similar character design and are also engaged in spreading happiness. And then you have the four, you have like the five bombers who are supposed to chase around town in order to, you know, do various things. And then you all of a sudden have these four kids running around in, in the remains masks and then the one with Majora's mask. So again, you've got the five bombers versus the five kids on the moon. Um, and like, there's something, there's a clear parallel running all the way from these kids on the moon to the happy mask salesman through the bombers. And again, it's sort of this dark parallel, um, this sort of, this sort of mockery, I think of what you would expect. But there's also, again, that theme of innocence and maturity where, you know, when you meet Majora, Majora is also immature. Um, she also plays games. Um, she's also juvenile, like, in the actual boss fight itself, the the it's not menacing. I mean, it's it funny. is. It's silly. I mean, the second form, especially Majora's <laughs> incarnation, it just like yeah. runs around and it shrieks and you hit it and it falls and it throws this little tantrum on the ground. Yeah. Like <laughs> all of the all of the animation decisions indicate that this is an incredibly immature entity. Um, whoever Majora is, it's it acts like a child. Um, it acts like it's not mature. Um, the jokes of the skull kid carry over to the jokes of Majora's mask itself. Um, it's attacks, it's behavior. I mean, Majora's wrath is legitimately threatening. Oh, it's terrifying. Yeah. But even, even then it's, it's terrifying because it's unknown. Um, it's monstrous. And not even in the sense of like monsters that we recognize and could theoretically characterize or humanize. Like its flesh is this same like particolored purple and pink that the mask has. And, you know, it, it seems to be able to extend its body parts at will in this sort of like transforming changeling kind of way. Um, you kind of get the sense that the, the human form it takes is could just as easily be cast off. Like the mask does not have to choose this form. It could be anything it wants. Um, and it's just playing with you. It's just messing with you. Uh, it's just putting on these forms in order to get inside your head, in order to ask those big existential questions, in order to challenge you and say, you be the bad guy. And when you're bad, you just run. Um, so, you know, its menace doesn't come from, you know, the grown-up world. Its menace comes from the childhood world. Like, the the unformed monsters that you imagine hiding in your closet who are all the scarier because you can never see them. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I, I mean, I think that goes back to some something about the kind of anxiety of creation, too, though, right? Like, I think we touched on this with, with the, the, the Tao Te Ching, Right, the, the concept of, of sort of the ultimate power being this kind of formless thing, and you know, you you speak it, you express it to an extent, but there's always something beyond it that that's ineffable, and you know, just you know, words escape. Um, 
or rather it escapes words uh <laughs> right so that that idea of like you, you run and hide like yeah that that's absolutely the case yep. uh, but of course but of course you, you win the fight not by running and hiding but but by well being just as tough and and just as brave as as the hero that you are right um i mean you can you can see i think some of this in um in the bomber analogy um, thing going on, you can see some of it in the uh, the Deku uh, like trading sequence thing as well, mm-hmm. right? Like there's there's this kind of um, mock seriousness to them. They they like put on their little hat and sort of make this little um, thrusting out of their chest um, to do business, right? But it, but it's right, really, yeah. I mean it's like it's just kind of funny. Like every I think every serious moment has has got its sort of um it's sort of silly element to it built in as well um and and i think every i think that that goes along with sort of that that um you know those questions that are so you know deep and and serious i think you know it's also possible to just kind of um laugh those off in a way like maybe it maybe it undercuts some of what's going on there but but I just, I just am, I'm struck by the sort of paradox of of that, um, the, those last bits of dialogue. How like, if you take them too seriously, you know, if you take Majora too seriously, you you've also missed the point, right? Like, yeah. there's there's something there's something very very tough to pin down there. Um, each one of those Deku guys, you know, they. They fly off when when you um, when you get their their uh, their property right. They 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 evanesce. They disappear. Um, <laughs> there's like this there's this quality I guess to it of um, of yeah just like fleetingness um, being being part of what you're on the one hand trying to protect um, what what you're trying to like utilize right um, and so like. It's, it seems really fitting to me that like the final um, prize that you get, right? The, the fierce deity's mask mm-hmm. is, is by its nature kind of temporary, right? Like very much uh, limited uh, in its scope. Um, it also, you know, runs down your, your magic meter pretty quickly. So you have to be efi- efficient, we'll say. Yeah. I'm also struck though that um, like, throughout the game you have this this sort of youth and um immaturity in people who should be mature like the deku king and then you know like andrew's grandmother the fierce deity is probably the single most adult yeah thing that you find in the whole game um that you know when, when majora is saying you know let's play a game when when the entire universe is framed as just a joke or sport you bring out the fierce deities mask and this is like dad just came home and now everyone's in trouble um and the game is over uh like it's over because it's rapidly finished and you just beat the crap out of majora and you're done and the game is over um in both you know the literal sense like you are now done playing the game watch the credits roll but also in the sense that you know this whole business with the moon falling and so on and so forth. Uh, clearly this child has not been supervised long enough and you know, it's time to bring the, the punishment, the discipline. 
Um, so, um, and, and like you said, it's only usable in certain areas um, unless, you, unless you get sneaky. Um, I, I think every single boss room in the game, you can use the Fierce Deities mask in. Like you can use it to fight Adalwa and Goat and um, Twin Mold and uh, the, the fish guy, Gyorg. Uh, but it's only useful in some of those situations. Um, <laughs> like if you fight Gyorg with the Fierce Deities mask, you will be sadly disappointed at its usefulness <laughs> um, because he's underwater half the time and there's only so much you can do about it. Um, it's surprisingly effective at taking on Twin Mold, but even then you're way better off just throwing on the giant's mask and beating the heck out of him with a sword. Um, weirdly, the one sort of exception to the rule and this was something that I messed with quite a bit when I was a kid because like, I found out that you could break the game this way and then, of course, I had to do it. Um, apparently, um, you can also wear the Fierce Deities mask in the, when, when you and Cafe are trying to get the sun mask. Like, yeah, that weird little cave with, that the, the thief owns. Um, you, can put the, you can put the Fierce Deities mask on in there. And what's more, if you leave it on, you actually walk out of the cave still wearing the Fierce Deities mask. And you can oh. go anywhere you want with the Fierce Deities mask at that point. Although there's some like really major problems, like some of the some of the passageways like through Clocktown are too low. <laughs> so you physically <laughs> can't go through them. Um, so again, it's limited in scope and it's pretty clear that the developers did not intend for you to run around Termina with the Fierce Deities mask on. Um, as you know, enticing as that is, given how powerful it is, um, like it, it broke my heart when I fi figured out when I realized that you couldn't just wear the Fierce Deity mask everywhere when I was yeah. first playing through the game. Um, but uh, but yeah, you can actually go around as the Fierce Deity in a lot of situations. But again, because of the nature of that Sun's Mask chamber, um, the only way the the only, like, it always dumps you out at the same time. Namely, right. six hours before the moon's going to crash. Basically like, the very end. <laughs> so even in that situation, even if you do manage to, quote, break the game, if the developers really didn't have this in mind, you've only got a little bit of time to use it. Like, by all means, go nuts, but you only get to go nuts for a little while. Um, so it is very fleeting. It is very transitory. It is incredibly useful, but only in certain very specific situations. Um, you can't you can't bring your dad in for the rest of the game. Um, <laughs> you can't rely on on adults to save you uh, if if you're really going to do something challenging. And of course, you could have to get through the whole game to even get to that point. Um, yes. you you've got to go through all of those tricky chambers that the that the kids on the moon make you go through you have to play through the entire game and summon the four giants and do everything that needs to do and then the game's like and here's the fierce deity mask go nuts um, yeah. that that power that it seems to possess um it is it is aligned in some way with majora's power too right like it's i think the way that it's framed is like I wonder if it's as bad as Majora or, or something like that is what it says when you get it. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, yeah, like way more so even. <laughs> it's really no contest. Um, is, is the fierce deity good or evil or, or something that transcends those kinds of, I, I don't know, 
divisions? Yeah, it's it's hard to say. I mean, I've always found it more threatening than anything else. Like, as much as you want to cast the fierce deity as the hero, he's aggressive. Like, the, the mask scream that goes along with it is the sort of primal shout. And his, like, even his actions, he's got this big sword that doesn't even look like a sword. And he shoots lightning bolts out of it in the old Zelda style. Um, and at the same time, you know, he doesn't look nice. He doesn't look friendly. Like you turn his face to the camera and it is once again alien. It is once again clear that it's just a mask in the same way that even the Goron mask and the Zora mask and the other transforming masks are just a mask. Um, something is still being hidden in that case. Uh, there's an obvious parallel to be drawn between the fierce deity and adult link in Ocarina of Time. Insofar as like, here and with the fierce deities mask adult link is bigger more adult he you know has a bigger sword he does more damage he is more capable of dealing with threats in hyrule um but unlike adult link it's not you um it is a mask that you wear and not even you know a mask that belongs in the world like you know Mikau or the goron that you take on this is a mask that is otherworldly um, and maybe is as dangerous. I mean, no other character references it. And you can't very well walk up to them wearing the Fierce Deity mask because of the limitations of where you can wear it. Um, the only hint you get of its origin is from Majora itself when he says, hey, let's play good guys against bad guys. You be the bad guy. Um, which he gives you right as, which he tells you right as he gives you the mask. So, whether that's because Majora is himself evil and he sort of recognizes the good guy as being the bad guy because of his alignment, or if he really is sort of taunting you and presenting you with an even bigger threat and even greater danger, um, it's unclear. Um, but it, it certainly does not, like of all the ways that you can interpret that, like walking into it and saying, yeah, I'm the hero. I got what I deserved. Watch me unleash my ultimate power. And just walking away thinking that this is like all good, all accomplishment. That's really not encouraged. Um, oh, yeah. There are too many elements complicating that situation. Yeah. And, and like you said, it, it sort of breaks the game uh, there at the, at the end. Um, it, it removes the challenge uh, in a lot of ways from the final boss fight. Mm-hmm. which could feel kind of underwhelming. Like uh, if you were sort of expecting something, you know, really difficult, really exhilarating. It certainly is exhilarating, but it's probably not that difficult compared to some of the other things you've accomplished by that point. Um, and I mean, I think that there's something like that going on with any sort of overpowered, um, you know, when you get to a certain point in this, this kind of a story, um, if you if you have something that powerful, it's a it's a sort of a problem for the the framework of the story itself. And yeah, I think it's kind of interesting that this game gets around it mostly by by not not alluding not alluding to it at all, uh, mm-hmm. with that exception of Majora's you know little message to you at the very end there, um, and you not being able to really use it anywhere else. Um, but it also sort of leaves open, I guess, um, where this this guy fits into the kind of 
cosmos of Termina. Um, it's it's pretty unclear. I I thought it was cool. I I mean, I was thinking about this a little bit because I think you you mentioned this a while ago or or sometime about the um, the Keaton mask, right? When you wear it in Ocarina of Time, the guard makes a joke about you being the hero, right? Um, or rather, the it's the guard who makes that joke that needs the Keaton mask for his son or, or something like that. Right. So there's, yeah. And yeah. The, but there's actually a Keaton, right. It turns out that like, it's a real thing in, in the world of this game. It, uh, it seems really powerful. Um, basically like transcends, you know, any other, um, um, monsters and things that you encounter out there in the field. Uh, and it, it will only sort of interact with you, not unlike the kids on the moon by, by asking you questions um, and, and playing a game with you. Right. Um, which it also, it also stresses that um, you're a child again, like yeah. the Keaton talks to you like, Oh, you, you're a good child. And then he proceeds to reward you if you answer the questions because you're a good child and you've been paying attention. Um, so again like he almost seems like this sort of santa claus or tooth fairy kind of figure that like he only <laughs> appears to children he only rewards good little boys like um that's that's sort of the implication there which makes it all the more interesting that you find the keaton mask because cafe is the one wearing it yeah um the one who's been transformed inappropriately into a child um and you, like, I think even the, the curiosity shop guy sort of lets you know that, you know, he's had this mask forever. He doesn't use it anymore, but now that he's transformed into a child, it's been a way of hiding who he is. So there's just all of this interesting implication there that it's like, you know, on the one hand, cafe is a grown adult, but now that he's been transformed into a child, he's hiding his identity in this, specialized childhood myth um like look at him he's the keaton he's just another kid please don't pay attention to his true identity um and i kind of wondered like can he find a keaton <laughs> if he goes around and slices up all the bushes um <laughs> or does Keaton know better does keaton recognize that cafe isn't properly a child that he is a bad child perhaps because he is hiding who he is he is sort of engaged in this deception he is dodging andrew's calls mm -hmm. um so yeah it's just this really interesting sort of congregation of metaphors and myths there um, is is key is the um cafe um does he ever appear in the credits like if you do something else that I didn't do in this playthrough, do you actually see him in the credits? Because I, I didn't, I don't think that I saw him as an adult. Yeah. Um, what, um, in the credits, you never actually see him like from another person's perspective. Uh, but you do get to see Andrew um, from his perspective. That's as, what's going on there. Okay. Yeah. Because like even the camera does some weird stuff there. It starts to bob like you're in the first person perspective of someone walking towards her. Mm -hmm. um, and it's remarkable that it's at her head height. Um, yeah. It's not from a kid's perspective. So if, if we can trust that symbolism, it seems that, you know, 
conquering the moon has broken the spell on Cafe, and now they can get married because he is an adult and has been restored to his appropriate size and shape. Um, especially because like the, the shot that you get after that first person approach to Anju is Tingle tearing up and tearing up his maps into confetti and then throwing it <laughs> over the crowd. Um, so the suggestion is that like Anju and Cathay's romance has in fact been consummated. They've, they're getting married. It's a happy ending. Good old Shakespearean comedy. Um, it's going to end with a marriage. What are some of the other, what are some of the things that do either appear or don't or not appear in the credits then? Like, um, I, I'm, I'm just, I don't know. I don't, I didn't make a list of everything that I saw, but if you rattle some off, I can tell you if I saw them or not. And, and I was, I was trying to watch out for things that, that didn't appear, but I don't know if they ever appear. So, so yeah. yeah. So how, do, how does it go? Most of the characters do in fact show up in the credits. Um, you get the, you get the cafe and Andrew meeting, um, you get a, a pretty decent sequence of the Indiegogos all oh, yeah. and playing at the at the bar. And is um, Macau back alive now? Like, or is that it Link? It shows like, Macau, but it looks like it's Link. Like he's wearing Link's, wearing yeah. Link shorts, <laughs> yeah, right. um, which Macau does not do. So, um, I've, uh, like, I've never been sure how to interpret that particular detail. Um, I okay. guess. I guess Link is is doing the honorable thing and performing that day with Lulu and company as well. Cool. Um, he is honorarily a member of the band, um, <laughs> but it it, does, it seems it seems unlikely that the that the um, credits want us to focus on that because it just pans across the band and then it shows the crowd, um, yeah. sort of watching and appreciating the performance, and it includes notably the the circus leader Gorman, yeah. but it also includes like the blacksmith. Um, right. he, the little shrimpy blacksmith operator and his giant hammer wielding companion they're both hanging out in the crowd having a good time watching the band right. um, as well as like a whole bunch of the uh, townspeople people that you would expect like the manager the, the fish guy who's hanging out with um, the mayor's wife uh, the mm-hmm. first couple of days like it, it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty expected spread um, I don't f- think there are any characters that are clearly missing um if anything i'd be hard pressed to point out like if any notable absences were there okay um it does the credits also do visit i think all four of the areas um i I remember vividly the that it goes to the akana throne room and all of the the disembodied heads of the various (laughs) skeletons you defeated are all just sort of bobbing around um, yes. The two the two underlings are still fighting, <laughs> um, yes. which, P.S. Just a side note, like they they changed this in the 3DS version. I absolutely love every time when like the bigger, broader skeleton um, is told that he's feeble by like the skinnier one, and the guy and he's like, "Say that again!" And this it proceeds to do this long, like minute long dialogue where he just says, "Feeble." feeble feeble <laughs> feeble and like the it makes the skull sound effect which has this like yeah, noise. yeah and it repeats it like 20 times and it's the <laughs> weirdest strangest and finally like the the bigger skull just like all right that's fine and he gets mad and he starts you know <laughs> and that 
shots when they get interrupted by the king. But in the 3DS version, they they totally just did that all as one block of text in like five seconds, and it really bummed mm. me out that I didn't get to sit there listening to the skull sound effect <laughs> for a good minute and a half. Um, but yeah, all, all of them are hanging around, and they seem to be content. Like, uh, Ikana has also received peace in its way. Um, yeah. The proud kingdom is destroyed, rightfully so, and they can rest. Um, so, so yeah, I'm pretty sure you get to see like the Deku king and all of his servants, and the the princess and the monkey. Peace is restored there. Mm-hmm. Um, you get to see obviously the various parts of Clock Town during the festival and the celebration there, and everything seems chill. Everything seems calm. Um, the again, the one downbeat, the one sort of like hiccup in the whole celebration at the end of the game is uh, the butler. Right. Who, the Deku butler who isn't in any of the other scenes, if I recall, and he's standing at the tree that is or was his son mourning. Um, and it's just this very somber moment that sort of interrupts what is otherwise very, you know, upbeat, very excited, very happy. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Well, I remember like it shows, you know, some of the people that you interact with um, down at the ranch, like you see the guy with the cuckoos um, pecking around. You yep. see a uh, little Romani shooting her bow and arrow, um, yep. like being awesome at that. Um, you see the but, dancers. I, oh, yeah. always strikes me because like they do their dance and there's a bunch of people watching, but just as when you teach them the dance in the first place, it gives you this one close-up of the one guard who's standing in the doorway. Oh, weird. Yeah, and it's striking. Like, I don't think it's meant to be creepy. It has more of this sort of omniscience about it. Like, he's just, you know, doing his job. He's just watching um, because it's his job to watch, and today he's lucky (laughs) to see. Um, like, I don't think it's meant to be perverse. Uh, it's more austere, I suspect. Mm. Um, but yeah, it, it repeats that shot, which I find interesting. Like, that just as, you know, just as when it was just the three of you and you were teaching the dance, he had observed the whole proceeding. Now, you know, everything is, everything is brought to its conclusion. They're doing their dance for an entire audience, and he's still there. He's still watching. He's still on his post. Huh. That, so there's also that moment one of the few moments you're told not to watch something right was with the um the daughter of the researcher right in the music box house and so you do see them again too um being very happy out in the like purified um valley or whatever yeah, the girl runs up and he scoops her into his arms and yeah. hugs her. it's really nice and so that's a kind of interesting like parallel in a way to the butler and his child who's, who's, um, you know, lost. And uh, I, I guess it's, it's curious to me that that should be sort of like one of the last interactions that you have with other characters, basically, right? Like meeting the music box girl and her dad. And then one of the first, um, maybe the first like interaction with the non-playable character, yeah. aside from, the fairies and you know um, the skull kid is is seeing that strange stump right so there's a kind of interesting way that the the parent child relationship really bookends the game um, and I guess 
I mean, I, I wonder, I'm curious to what extent the, the tradition or the expectation is that, you know, kids be sort of supervised while they play games. Because mm-hmm. um, in that case, you know, it's not so much the kid playing as the parent watching who is sort of like cognizant of a lot of this stuff going on. Um, but I, I mean, that, that's probably just a speculative question, really. I, I don't know how to yeah, even approach a, that. That would be a hard one to answer. Um, I am struck, though, by the reversal between mm-hmm. those two examples. Like, on the one yeah. hand, you have the, the corrupted child um, being mourned by the, the father who is otherwise, you know, hale and healthy, um, the child who ran away. And then yeah. on the other hand, you have the the girl protecting her distorted father, like taking responsibility for him, like reversing that parent-child relationship. Um, and, you know, again, that's something that is restored. That's what you fix. You make the dad her dad again instead of, you know, continuing to abide in this reversal of responsibilities where the child now has to take care of the father because of what's happened to him. Yeah. So so by the end then you're sort of off on your your next adventure, I guess. Um the I, I don't really worry too much, I guess, about like continuity or, or where this game um, you know, fits in some kind of literal way with with other events. Um, but it is interesting that it, you know, it makes some gesture at that with with, you know, this is the link from Ocarina of Time, uh, because we have lots of hints to that effect, right? Um, and he's sort of on some sort of journey. Um, where is he? He's going to find Navi? Is that yeah. like sort of the, the conceit? Um, yeah. From the very beginning and through to the end, like even when, um, even when you do ultimately like finish the game and everybody sort of bids you farewell, the implication is, um, I think Tanu actually says something to the effect of you found what you were looking for, yeah. um, which seems right, but mm-hmm. doesn't. Because again, this is all framed in the context of where's Navi and you didn't find her. Um, like all this game, one of the characters you never met was Navi. Um, yeah. But part of the suggestion like lingering from Ocarina of Time in this sort of grander context is that um, Navi deserts you at the end of Ocarina of Time and Navi is always the symbol of your childhood. Like she's, yeah. uh, on the one hand, you know, all Kokiri, they all get a, they all get a fairy, but that fairy is, that fairy doesn't stay with them as they get older. Like the Kokiri do not age. Right. Um, so having the fairy always represents, you know, being young, even to the point where like Tingle is criticized because he's still looking for a fairy, even though he's 30 and his dad's like, oh, <laughs> we don't talk about Tingle. He's the worst. Um, so if in fact you're searching for your youth, for your childhood, then maybe Tadiel's right and you mm. found it here in Termina. Like you get to be a kid for a little while longer. You get to mess with time and you get to play games and you get to, you know, play with Majora and his pals. You get to play with the bombers and <laughs> like you get to extend your little childhood. Yeah. But 
and again, I'm not huge on the Zelda continuity either. Um, but it is apparently canon. This this did come up in an interview, um, and Shigeru Miyamoto confirmed this. But apparently, in Twilight Princess, um, when you when you learn new moves, you are taught them by a Stalfos. Oh yeah, another skeleton guy, um, and there are hints uh, in Twilight Princess that the Stalfos belongs to the Hyrule that was. And in Ocarina of Time, it is indicated that anyone who stays in the Lost Woods will become a Stalfos. Um, in fact, the, like, the one guy who you have to deal with in the trading sequence in Ocarina of Time to get the Vigoron sword, like he runs away to the Lost Woods because he can't spend time with his family anymore. You go to him once and you bring him the chicken and he's really excited about it and then he wants you to bring back like a mushroom potion and you bring back the mushroom potion and he's gone and there's this kokiri girl saying yeah anyone who comes in the forest becomes a stalfos so he's a stalfos now sorry whoa um, which is yeah like that is the correct reaction <laughs> we should be uncomfortable about this but Miyamoto confirmed that the stalfos you meet in twilight princess is the hero of time um when you you know wander into the woods looking for navi looking for your childhood looking for your youth you don't come back um and you know wandering back into the lost woods at the end of majora's mask is the last time we're going to see that iteration of link until he's teaching us sword moves in twilight princess as a stalfos <laughs> interesting yeah that that he would be sort of trapped in the game in, in some way then um and not as really the hero but as this kind of uh helper this um yeah this kind of non-playable character yeah. um do on we ever and he's you know he's lost his childhood on the other hand he has gotten immortality just as the kokiri did though yeah. not the way you would have wanted <laughs> <laughs> so do we ever um I, I don't know, get the sense that the um, the fairies that are the shape and size of a navi or a tattle and tail, do they like grow up into the great fairies or are they sort of beings of a different, um, you know, quality or, or, or some a different nature? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think, we don't really get any hints as to the lifespan of the fairy. Um, and... I mean, at, at the same time, you get to see Navi and Tadhil and these sort of helper fairies who talk to you and guide you through the game. You get the the re regular little pink fairies who you find at the fountains who you can stick in bottles and yeah. who will heal you if you fall. Um, and the great fairy is usually affiliated with, with the, the little fairies. Like, you'll often find little fairies at fairy fountains, uh, at great fairy fountains, when, when you're running through any number of Zelda games, like A Link yeah. to the Past especially. There's clearly some, some overlap um, between great fairies and normal little fairies. Um, but as far as I can tell, great fairies have always op sort of operated as guardian spirits. Like, they, they're just a different order of being. It's not like little fairies grow into great fairies. It's more like great fairies are, you know, like capital or lowercase g gods, and fairies by nature seem to flock to them. Um, huh. So, yeah. I mean, again, sort of looking at the Shinto 
religion that that Shigeru Miyamoto is very much drawing for. Like these are very clearly guardian spirits in some sense. They preserve and protect the land, and anyone who you know is doing the same work, namely Link, they're very willing to help. Yeah, that's interesting. So it's like there's sort of three distinct functions, if you like, of what the fairies seem to be about. Like either this kind of guiding and direction, this this playfulness of childhood, um, closely associated with it because they look alike is the you know the reviving if you fall or or just restoring health, and then finally this you know larger scale sort of um, unlocking of new abilities, um, yeah, sort of presiding over corners of the world or or, or whatever, um, and and that those are you know maybe related in some way or or like akin, but but not quite the same that that's interesting yeah uh, i think i think like the best analog that i can come up with is actually to uh to galadriel in yeah. in lord of the rings like she she's the capital f fairy for tolkien like her her job is to preserve and protect and her function specifically like galadriel is even more special than your average elf insofar as like she has her entire realm that she preserves and protects and fights off the evil from. And in that realm, she is even like a creator. She, she invented the Malorn trees, which yeah. are, you know, her, her greatest contribution to middle earth and which would, will theoretically die out um, in time after she leaves. Like the last great Malorn tree is the party tree that, that Sam plants when he brings the seed all the way back to Hobbiton. Yes. Um, so, so in the same way, the great fairies in in all of the Zelda games seem to have this function of being preservers and protectors. And it makes sense that the Skull Kid and his, you know, grand tyrannical regime would start by breaking up the great fairies. Like, mm-hmm. no, you, I am messing up the world. You are not allowed to get in my way. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like, you know, part of what the dungeons are is like a place to 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 squirrel away all the pieces of the fairies so they can't come mm. back together, right? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, so it's a kind of, yeah, a kind of hide-and-seek from the very start. Mm-hmm. Uh, yet another child's game. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, well, so, I I mean, uh, the, the way that this game ends um, is finally it sort of zooms in on you in this drawing that um, has has uh, you and the, the Skull Kid hanging out on the stump. Um, the giants are in the background, like you're all friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's the end, right? It's, on the one hand, cheerful, I guess, right? But on yeah. the other hand, it's kind of already frozen in time image of something that's that's over. Yeah. Um, and you'll I notice, like, really when, yeah, it was. And even down to like when you when you sit there watching it, it plays just the first six notes of Saria's song, da, 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 which you hear virtually nowhere else in the game. Like the only place that you hear it is the weird lost woodsy place that you can get lost in in the in the swamp. Yeah. Um, but it's remarkable because that is the song you play to the Skull Kid in Ocarina of Time. So, so it's hearkening back to, you know, that was the moment that really started our friendship. Like, just as he's sniffing you and saying, yep, you, you smell like that fairy kid who was my friend in the forest. Well, you know, that's the basic connection. That's the place where that connection was built. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, here at the end, we have a hearkening back to the beginning and the fact that it's friendship that's pulled all these characters through. Mm -hmm. Um, That, you know, it's because of the the lack of friendship that the world was threatened in the first place with the Skull Kid being upset that the giants had left him. Um, And now it's a new friendship that redeems it. Yeah. The... So of all the friends that you encounter here, um, it's this absent one that you've been seeking the entire time. Um, I, I just, I find it notable as well, and I don't know how far to take this, but that the, the character Navi is not particularly beloved among players of Zelda games, right? Nope. Um, so there's, there's something very interesting going on there as well that, that the character, that the, the, um, inciting incident, right, that sort of drives the the overall plot of this game is to go and find this character that everyone is much happier should not be in the game at all. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, some of that I think is, is completely external to what's yeah. going on there. Yeah. Like, I, I can't help but think that, you know, Miyamoto and the designers of Majora's Mask were like, how do we, how do we just shuffle Navi off screen? <laughs> but at the same, and like, we're just not even going to worry about this. Forget, forget Navi. We don't want her involved. We have to redesign the fairy system. So we're just going to have a whole new character. Um, and as tempted as I am to say that, like, that's the motivation. I also know, you know, at the end of Ocarina of Time, fair, Navi like flies off. It's yeah. one of the last shots you get is she, she abandons Link. Um, so it's pretty clear that that's, that was not, you know, not anticipated. Like, furthermore, the, over t- the turnover between Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask was apparently just a year. Like, wow. Miyamoto and his team just like blasted through that process to get Majora's Mask out. Um, and, you know, that's why they u- reuse so many of the sprites and the models and things like that. Um, like, it, it, they're great time-saving devices, especially because they are overhauling so much in the process. Like, all the new Goron and Zora models, all the new landscapes, all the new mechanics that are introduced. Um, like, it, it was probably a huge help that they got to use basically a functional working game as the underlying foundation to what they were doing. Um, so, so again, I doubt that they had, you know, we got a shuffle Navi off screen to, to keep the players happy in mind. It seemed like it was set up way in advance. Does sound like a very convenient, um, response though. Um, and Tadil is so much, so much more discreet. Oh yes. Um, much, much more interesting character wise. Yeah. And you know, his whole journey is to find his sis too. So it's kind of a nice mirror of, of yeah. what's going on there. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, yeah, I, I guess the, the remarkable time, uh, you know, crunch that they had to develop the game, that certainly translates in the gameplay um, in, a, in a really good way, in a good thematic kind of way. Um, one, one last image I had of this game, um, I meant to say this one of the times when your cuckoo clock was going off, but like, I, I started to realize that the entire game is a giant clock, right? Because everyone moves in this very synced up way, right? Everything has to be at just so at every time of, of day and night. Um, and so you're the only sort of thing in this world that's really not predetermined. That mm-hmm. go, you go around and, and you affect things and make things you know, change. Um, 
and that's that's breaking a clock right like if you yeah. have something like that in a real clock the clock doesn't work anymore um yep. so that there's just kind of one more uh, yeah i don't know component of of this game thinking about what it means to break a game um and, and sort of represent that dramatize that yeah it seems especially interesting because you know so much of the zelda franchise emphasizes that everything that happens is faded like yeah. the the conflict between ganon and link in zelda is something that is repeated endlessly time after time there's no way to break out of these cycles uh, they're admittedly degenerating cycles like every iteration is worse than the last but at the mm -hmm. same time it's it's still this this set in stone repeating cycle it is as regular as a clock um so you know the fact that that link in in both majora's mask and in link's awakening is the unknown factor um the one free entity who is not predetermined that's that's an interesting contrast that is something unexpected um, i think the way this takes place in in the new game well unless they've made a newer game since then the breath of the wild right um this kind of open world component that would be really interesting i can't really talk about it much because i haven't played it yet <laughs> still. right um, so that's that's a game that i definitely want to play and and get to have some discussion about at some point but um but you had suggested that we do something a little lighter for our next series here um something smaller scale uh so so what is this game that you're suggesting we play all right, so I know that we've been, been hitting those big, heavy 90s uh, games with all of the sort of nostalgia baggage and all of these deep themes. And um, I was thinking we might turn our attention to something a little bit newer and a little bit lighter. Um, so the game is called Little Inferno. Uh, and it is the second big release by a developer, an indie developer named Kyle Gabler. Um, his first game was World of Goo which is wonderful. Um, <laughs> everything he's released has been wonderful. Um, but Little Inferno is uniquely wonderful, even in his sort of greater body of work, um, because it's just, it's unexpected in a lot of ways. Like, um, I, I mean, I know, you know, as few listeners as we have, probably fewer still have heard of this one. Um, heard it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's truly a sneaky little masterpiece in its way. Um, the whole game takes maybe a few hours to complete. So I suspect it'll take us about three sessions to, right. to talk through the whole thing. Um, and the, the, the primary mechanic is burning things. Uh, <laughs> like the, the name Little Inferno is extremely apt. It will present you with a fireplace and you will set things on fire. And that is basically all you're going to do for a long time. Um, so, so for our first session next week, I'd like to get through the first two catalogs, which, you know, that will become obvious when you start in. Okay. And again, that's maybe an hour to an hour and a half of play really not that long. Um, but the, there are a couple things that I want to want to look out for as we're playing through this. Um, first off, I want to look for themes because this game is very weird about themes. Like they're present and they're very strong and important uh, to the way that the game works, but they're also presented in such an unusual way um, that I want to sort of tease them out and, and see what, 
see what there is to them. Um, I also would stress, uh, this is a game released on like a bunch of different platforms. Uh, I've played it on Steam. Um, I have it on, I, I think I, you can get it on like the Nintendo Switch. Um, but it's also a phone game. So you can download it for Android or for iPhone or for whatever. And arguably that's the most organic way to play it. Um, with a touch screen, you just touching the screen and setting fire to things. Um, but also because it's sort of deliberately deliberately parodying and spoofing typical phone game mechanics with the, with the whole sort of like you have to wait a certain amount of time before you can do certain actions or right. pay alternatively. Um, and, and the game is definitely making some fairly pointed commentary on that front. Uh, but yeah, like to say any more is to spoil things. Um, but if we get through the first two catalogs for next week, I suspect we'll have plenty to discuss. Excellent. All right. So little Inferno for any, yeah, if, if there's any listeners that we managed to get before next week, um, I will say that we will have to get this uh, posted. Um, and we're looking into some other potential ways of hosting and, and, you know, getting this podcast out for the, for the near future here. So yeah, for, for those who are listening, look out for that. And, and anyways, you know, uh, this is the sort of thing that's like a kind of a message in a bottle. We send it out there. Who knows when yep. and where people are, are getting it, but I hope that it's enjoyed. And we certainly thank you for listening. Thanks Ben yep. for your time. Thank you Wes for having me and yeah. to all of our listeners out there who are taking up our message in a bottle. Cool. Yeah. Um, I'll look forward to little Inferno for next time. Very good. Cool. So then see ya. Bye.